Our scripture reading this morning will be from Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And we'll read the first 31 verses. Matthew 27, you'll find on page 991 in your pew Bible. But Matthew chapter 27, and we'll read verses 1 through 31. So Matthew 27 and verse 1. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hung himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together, and with the money, bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium 
and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. We'll stop there. In the bulletin, it says that my text is verse 6. My text it will actually be verse 26. Verse 26. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Congregation, in these weeks of the, of the year, right before the uh, celebration of Easter, we often uh, are led in our thoughts to think about the sufferings of Jesus. I know in one of my churches, uh, the church in which I grew up, they had what they called the Passion Weeks, which was seven weeks before Easter, in which the, the minister would preach and the congregation would meditate on the sufferings and the death of Christ. And so this morning I thought to, to bring a message about Jesus' suffering. And especially this morning to focus on this man, Barabbas. You know, Barabbas is, is such an interesting character in the Bible. Because one of the things that we celebrate the most about the death and the suffering of Christ is its substitutionary character. Right? Sometimes you'll hear the old word vicarious. That's, that's just another word for substitutionary. In other words, Jesus is a substitute. Jesus, the innocent one, is the substitute for his guilty people. And we see that in such a graphic way, don't we, with Barabbas. Not in a spiritual way, at least as far as we know. But in a literal, physical way, Barabbas went free and Jesus was condemned. So we see, in a, in a sense, this substitutionary character of Jesus' work in the life of Barabbas. And that's what I'd like to think about with you somewhat this morning. Now, as we, as we enter the, into this story, we want to think about how Barabbas came on the scene here at all. And in the first place, it's necessary to understand a bit of the history behind this man Pontius Pilate. Because Pilate, I imagine Pilate was overjoyed. You know, the Romans valued something very highly. The Greeks loved philosophy and wisdom. And they, and they, and they loved to search into the nature of things. But the Romans loved power. In fact, if you can kind of keep that in your mind, the Greeks loved philosophy. The Romans loved power. And when Pilate had been given uh, Judea as a, as a governor to, to rule over Judea, I imagine his heart must have been flush with pride. He must have been just overjoyed that he had now real power in his hand. He would live in a palace. He would wear the robes of a governor, a Roman governor. He would have charge over soldiers. And, and uh, this must have really... Uh, Tickled his fancy, if I could say it that way. He must have really been happy. And of course, little did Pilate know that Judea was the last place in the world that you would want to have to rule. Because the Jews are such a unique 
kind of people. Now, there was a man in the Roman uh, court. Uh, at the time, the governor's name was Tiberius, who was a, a, a particularly temperamental kind of man, very temperamental. Uh, you walked on, on, on eggshells around Tiberius. Uh, he was extremely temperamental. One of the men who had kind of worked his way into Tiberius' favor was a man named Sejanus. By the way, I'm going to stop the sermon here and, and just say, there is a book on Pontius Pilate by Paul Meyer. It is a historical fiction book. And it is, it is extremely interesting. And I highly recommend it to you. Uh, Pontius Pilate, uh, you, you will not be able to put it down. It is gripping. Uh, and you will learn all these things that I'm going to talk to you about today uh, from Pontius Pilate. Uh, the different history uh, behind this very interesting man. So you can, you can look that up. Paul Mayer, M-A-I-E-R, something like that. Paul Mayer, he's a Lutheran professor who still lives today. And he's, uh, he writes these historical fiction books. Very interesting. At any rate, Pilate had, uh, was one of the friends of this man, Sejanus. Sejanus, remember, was the man who had come into uh, the, the good graces of Tiberius. And Sejanus was a very anti-Semitic man. He hated the Jews. And so when Pilate began to rule over the Jews, he took a heavy hand with them and was quite cruel to them and, and ruled them with power. But again, that's what the Romans loved, right? They loved power. Well, what happened in Rome was Sejanus fell out of Tiberius' favor, right? You know the old uh, expression, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, right? Because one day you might be in favor, but especially with Tiberius, the next day you're out of favor, and Sejanus was killed and thrown down the Roman stairs. You know, in Rome they had that temple, and that was how, that's what they did as the ultimate disgrace. They would throw you down these stairs. Well, anyways, so the, uh, the, the Tiberius now switched from being very anti-Semitic to being very pro-Semitic. And he wanted Judea to be a peaceful country. He wanted no trouble in Judea. Now, Pilate continued to be the governor of Judea, even after Sejanus' fall from grace and his, his death. He continued to, to rule the Jews uh, with power. But now he knows that back in Rome, Tiberius wants calm in Judea. Now, the first incident that happened in, in, in uh, Caesarea, that's where Pontius Pilate would have lived. He didn't live in Jerusalem. He hated Jerusalem. He didn't want to be there. He didn't like the Jews at all. So he lived in Caesarea. And what happened was uh, Pilate had shields made that had uh, the figure of the emperor embossed on it. Okay, so you might, you might think of it as kind of stamped on the metal of the shield was a, representative, or a picture of Emperor Tiberius. And he had these shields brought to Jerusalem to be used for defensive purposes. And they were also decorative. And the Jews threw a terrible fit because that figure, that picture of Tiberius on the shield was very offensive to them. You know that the Jews are forbidden, right? In the second commandment, that you shall not make a carved image. And this to them, anyway, represented such a thing. And so they became very irate. And they, and they, 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 they went to Caesarea, a delegation of these Jews, a large delegation of these Jews, went to Caesarea and stood in the plaza before uh, Pontius, Pilate, Pontius Pilate's palace, and they refused to leave until Pilate would have those shields removed. 
So Pilate took his soldiers and said, go mingle with that crowd. And at a given signal, kill them. Now that's the Roman way, right? Well, you can imagine uh, his, his, his surprise and his horror uh, when he told the soldiers to pull their swords and the Jewish people lifted their heads and said, kill us all. They threw themselves, some of them, on the pavement and said, kill us all. We would rather die than live in a city that has an embossed figure of the emperor on a shield. And Pilate was horrified. He couldn't kill all these Jews. He knew that Tiberius would be, would be very upset if he found out that Pilate had slaughtered all these Jews in cold blood. And so Pilate lost the battle. The shields were removed, and the Jews went back to Jerusalem. But it didn't look good. It was a strike against Pilate's administration. Sometime later, and actually only a few years before this trial of Jesus, Pilate again had some shields made with no image of Caesar on it. No image. It just had the name Tiberius on it. And he had these shields brought into Jerusalem. Again, Pilate is doing this to curry favor with Tiberius back in Rome. But the exact opposite happened. Because again, the Jews threw a terrible fit. And Pilate's like, well, these shields don't even have the, the image of, G, of uh, Tiberius on it. Well, what's the problem? And, they, and they, 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 again, enraged and they rioted. And it, and it, was, uh, it was a very bad situation. And uh, this time, the Jews were very savvy. They wrote a letter to Tiberius and said, Pilate is, is doing these things to aggravate us and irritate us. And Tiberius wrote back to Pontius Pilate and said, get rid of those shields now. So you could see how the exact opposite effect happened. Instead of Pilate winning the favor of Tiberius, he lost the favor of Tiberius. Well, Pilate's in a very difficult dilemma, isn't he? Those were the previous blunders of Pilate. Pilate is trying to pacify the Jews, be peaceful to the Jews. Of course he wants his own way. He's a Roman. He loves power. And he's trying to keep the Roman administration back in Rome, Tiberius. He's trying to uh, curry favor with them as well. This is, you might say, the rock and the hard place that Pilate's caught between long before the trial of Jesus ever even began. And then, of course, it happens that here come the Jews now with Jesus, as we have in our text in Matthew 27. And Pilate immediately senses this, this is a harmless person. This Jesus represents no threat to the Roman emperor. But at any rate, Pilate has to do his due diligence. So in verse 11, Matthew 27 and verse 11, he asks him very directly, are you the king of the Jews? This is the only thing Pilate's concerned about. Are you a threat to the Roman government? So he asks him, are you the king of the Jews, right? And again, king in the Roman sense, right? The sense of power. Are you a king of the Jews? And you might wonder, Jesus says, it is as you say. One of the commentators I was reading said that we, in our language, that would be sort of saying, uh, well, you said it, not I. It's kind of an evasive answer, isn't it? It's an evasive answer purposely because Jesus knows that Pilate, if Jesus said, yes, I'm the king of the Jews, Pilate would completely misunderstand him. Pilate doesn't have any inkling of what Jesus means by king and kingdom. Those are two radically different notions. What Jesus means by the word king and kingdom and what Pilate understands king and kingdom to mean. And the thing is, Pilate, even 
well, I said that Pilate has no understanding, but Pilate does understand that this Jesus is not a political revolutionary. Yes, he has a following. Yes, people love him. But he doesn't seem to be encouraging people to rise up against the Roman Empire. He has no armed men. In fact, you know, maybe even Pilate heard the story that when Peter pulled out his sword to strike Malchus, the high priest's servant, Jesus said, put your sword back, and even did a miracle of healing him on the man's ear. And then there's Jesus' silence. Jesus just stands there. These Jews are hurling these accusations at him, left and right, one after the other, and Jesus seems completely unconcerned about the whole proceedings. He seems even uninterested. It doesn't seem to ruffle him at all. He just stands there in peaceful serenity and quiet. I mean, you and I, if we were there, we would be indignant. We would be saying, what? No, I, well, I, you know, we would defend ourselves. But Jesus just stands there. He seems completely uninterested in, the, in what's happening. And so now here's Pilate's dilemma again. What to do? On the one sense, he has this sense of Roman justice. Jesus is innocent. There's really no reason to put this man to death. On the other hand, he needs to pacify these Jews because if there's another riot... Pilate's in trouble. Tiberius is not going to take kindly to hearing reports of another riot from Judea. So he needs to pacify the Jews. His sense of justice wants to let Jesus go free. And so Pilate is, is searching, right? He's hunting for something to do to, to get Jesus off and to keep the Jews quiet. Now, the one thing we read in Luke 23 is he decides, hey, maybe I can pass this off to Herod. And in Luke 23, you can read about that. Pilate sends him off to Herod, thinking that, well, maybe Herod can deal with this issue and I can wash my hands of it. But that doesn't work. Back comes Jesus. But then we read in our text here of another solution that Pilate happens upon. And again, you can, you can almost think of Pilate as he's sitting there and he's thinking, right? And, and suddenly it crosses his mind. That's right. Every year around the Passover time, the Jews expect me to release someone from prison whom they choose. That's it. I'll think of the very worst criminal that I can find who I'm holding in prison today, and instead of letting the Jews pick who they're going to have released, I'll put this man up and Jesus. And of course, they'll never want this man, so they'll let Jesus go free. Now, who could I pick? Who is the worst man that the Jews, that nobody would ever want back on the streets again. And then it comes to him, Barabbas. Barabbas is the one. Now in my second point there, I say, Barabbas who? Who is Barabbas? Well, in John 18, verse 40, we read that Barabbas was a robber, a thief. So this means that Barabbas would have been just as obnoxious to the Jewish people as he was to the Roman people. Right? The Romans had put him in prison. But the Jews had no love for Barabbas either. We read in Matthew 27, in our text here in verse 16, that he was a notorious prisoner. So he was infamous. He was well known. The people, you said Barabbas, they knew immediately who you were talking about. Everybody knew Barabbas. We read in, in, uh, in Mark 15 and in Luke 23 again, in the parallel accounts here, that Barabbas had committed murder in an insurrection. He had committed murder in the insurrection. Probably this was one of these insurrections where they, where they, uh, 
Remember the Jews were always chafing under the Roman rule and probably there was some kind of rebellion. There were many of these in those days and Barabbas had participated in that and he had committed murder. So you've got a thief, he's a murderer, and he's notorious. He's a famous man. And Pilate thinks, that's it. Now I've got the Jews right where I want them. I'll, I'll, I'll put this, I'll put up a, a kind of duo, right? A, a, a Barabbas and Jesus. And I'll say, now which of these two do you want? And of course, I mean, it's inconceivable that they would pick Barabbas. Why would they want Barabbas back on their streets? Even though they don't like Jesus. I mean, everybody has to admit that he's, he's pretty well harmless and he does a lot of good things. Jesus will go free and I can be done with this whole obnoxious affair and just be finished with it. Well, congregation, you, you probably, probably no one here can really imagine the, the rage, the, the incredible frustration. And we talk about pulling our hair out with frustration. And here is Barabbas. He goes back into the praetorium. He waits a while. And then he comes back out. And in verse 21, he asks the question. Okay, time's up. Who do you want? I've put Barabbas and Jesus up before you. Make your choice. Can you, can you imagine? Can you imagine what must have gone through that man's head when he heard them shout back, Barabbas? And, and you know, the, the text here is just, is just printed in you know, simple words, but like if you read in verse 22, you, you really should understand that. And Pilate roared back at them. Right, because I mean, this man is now irritated to the highest degree. What shall I do with Jesus? Verse 23, he says, what evil has he done? What, what charge do you bring against him? We're Romans here. We're not savages. We don't just kill people because you don't happen to like them. If we're going to bring somebody to capital punishment, they have to have committed a capital crime. And it has to be proven. We're civilized Romans here. And again, I'm just trying to communicate some of the some of the irritation, the rage this man must have felt. I, I think that if he'd had his way right now, he'd have just, he'd have just wiped the Jews out permanently right there. He was, he was in a, a fury. And, and these Jews are just incorrigible. They are just bent on the destruction of this man. And so once again, Pilate has to give. He knows when he's beaten. And he can't risk, and right, it says in, in verse 24, but rather that a riot was starting. I mean, Pilate can look out. He can see that this is not going well. The Jews are getting agitated. He knows that if reports get back to Rome, that another riot broke out in Judea, he's in big trouble. And so Pilate finally has to cave, doesn't he? And then we come to our text in verse 26. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, whipped with those lead-tipped whips, he handed him over to be crucified. And congregation, that really that, that text there is, is so pregnant with meaning. It's so heavy with meaning. Verse 26. Not for what took place literally, but for what is, what is a typified, what the, the picture that is given us there of substitution. And in my, my points of application, I'd like to focus on that point of substitution. And my first, my first point there is just that substitution. You know, congregation, that at the center 
of our understanding of God's saving work is this idea of substitution. That is at the center of the gospel. That Jesus in our place, it was represented for us already in the Old Testament, right? When those lambs, when the ox, when the goat, whatever animal might have been, was brought to the, to the temple floor. And then do you remember that the guilty man, the guilty woman, would place their hands upon that animal, right? And they would even, as it were, kind of lean on that animal. And then the priest's knife would come and strike that animal until it bled out and died there. Right? And that whole picture of those animals dying there was a picture of substitution. The innocent animal losing its life, losing its blood as a substitute for the guilty man or the guilty woman or even the guilty nation. Substitution. The innocent for the guilty. The guilty one goes free. The innocent one is killed and loses his life. That is, that is just at the center of all of the Old Testament worship in so many different ways. All the sacrifices, uh, except the non-bloody sacrifices, of course, but all the sacrifices that involved the death of the animal picture for us that substitution. And when you come to the New Testament and Jesus is administering the Lord's Supper, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. That's what he's saying, right? That this new covenant that I'm now establishing is established and sealed to you in blood. Not the blood of a sheep or a goat or an ox, but in my blood. In my blood. The blood of the Son of God. And so Jesus' atonement is a substitutionary atonement. Now we have words in, in you know, Jesus explicitly says that, right? In Matthew 20 and verse 24, Jesus says, uh, that the Son of Man, in verse, uh, in, I'm sorry, Matthew 20 and verse 28, and as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. In congregation, that word for there should be translated in the place of, or as a substitute for. It's a very precise preposition there. It's not just the general word for for. Right? Like if I might do something for you, if I might come and shovel the snow off your sidewalk for you, right? For your, for your benefit, for your advantage. No, this is a substitutionary. And to give his life a ransom as a substitute for many. So Jesus himself represents his work as the fulfillment and the completion of all what took place in the Old Testament worship. You saw substitution in the Old Testament? I am now that substitute, says Jesus. And we know that Paul who gives us so much of the theology, how we are to understand theologically the work of Jesus, says the same thing. And I just give you that word in Galatians 3 and verse 10, where he says in Galatians 3 verse 10, that Christ redeemed us from the, this is uh, Galatians 3 verse 13, sorry. Galatians 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Or in our place. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So there you see it very clearly, right? It's explicit to us that Christ was a curse for us. Not because he deserved to be punished. But in our place. And in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5. 
1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. So very clearly then, at the center of our understanding of salvation is this idea of substitution. In the Old Testament types, in the New Testament work of Jesus Christ, and in Paul's teaching us how to understand that work of Christ. Substitution at the center of our understanding of salvation. And so, congregation, then to, to return to this text in Matthew 27. I come to my second point. My second point is liberation. And at this point, congregation, I want to focus especially on the man Barabbas. Because you know, this is, this is such a, a beautiful picture of what takes place in our salvation. You have Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is a notorious criminal. He knows and he expects any day to be hauled out of that cell, to be nailed to a Roman cross, and to be executed for his crimes. And if you can, if you can put yourself in his shoes, congregation, as he sits in that jail cell, that cold, dark, Roman prison cell, he waits. He gets food one day. He eats it. Thinks this could be my last meal. Oh, there comes another meal the next day. I guess they're not quite ready yet to put me to death. He has another meal. Maybe this will be the last one. And then he hears the footsteps. Do you hear them too? He hears those footsteps. And they draw closer, right? Closer they come. He hears that key going in the lock. And the door swings open. And there stands the executioner, ready to take him. Ready to tie him. And to drag him off to crucifixion. But instead, the man takes him. Unshackles him. Takes him to the door of the prison. And said, you're free. You may go. Now picture in your mind, congregation, what must have gone through that man's head as he heard these words. The disbelief. Go free? You know, I once went to visit the Ionia prison. Are you familiar with the Ionia prison in, in, in Michigan? You know, east of Grand Rapids, about an hour. And I don't know if you've ever seen that prison. It looks like a prison. It looks like, it looks like a very dark, foreboding place. Uh, and I went in that prison, visited the man I was visiting. And as I, as I left, I'll never forget it. I, it was an experience I will never forget. As I was opening the, the door to the outside to go out, I heard behind me. I heard that door clang shut. The, the, the real door, right? The door that kept the inmates in. Clang with that door shut. And just at that moment, it, just, it was like God just brought it down to me so powerfully. Here I was, stepping out onto the sidewalk, a free man. And the man I had been visiting was going back to his cell. And it just struck me at the moment, why am I walking out here free? And why is he going to his cell? What's the difference between us? But my friend, now put yourself in, in, in Barabbas' place. He knows that he deserves to die. He knows the crimes he's committed. And he steps out, and he's free. I, I sometimes wonder, what did, did he yell, I'm free? Or did he, what did he do? What, what's the first thing that he thought? What's the first thought that went through his mind? Where did he go? 
What did he do? He's a free man. It must have been, it must have been mind-boggling to him to think that he's free. But congregation, that's exactly what happens to us. When God sets us free from the guilt of our sin. And how does he do that? By substitution. By substitution. Because we are as sinful and as guilty as Barabbas. And there came a time in our life, dear friends, whether when it, we, was, we were younger, or whether when it was we were older, whether we were entirely conscious of it or not, there came a time in our life when Jesus came and set us free from the prison of our own sin and guilt. And He took our place. When we were to be led away to crucifixion, to execution, when we were to be led away to eternal damnation, Jesus stepped into our place and set us free. We are the Barabbas. Jesus is the innocent one. Dear friends, I ask you this morning, how long ago was it that the, that the glory, the astonishment of that fact filled your soul with glory and with joy? How long ago was it that it blew your mind that you were set free and Jesus went to the cross? How long ago was it? Was it this morning? Maybe it was last year. Maybe you can't remember the last time, congregation. But this Sunday, as we think about the passion of Christ and His sufferings for us, let that thought sink into your mind, congregation, that you were bound up in a prison, ready to be led forth to eternal condemnation. The fire was stoked, you might say. The door was open. The fire was reaching to take hold of you. The devils of hell were ready to grasp you. I want you to see that picture this morning. And the Lord Jesus Christ came. He snatched you. Do you remember what it says in the prophet Zechariah? A brand snatched from the burning. That's you, congregation, and that's me. If you're a believer this morning. Let the reality of that sink into your soul this morning. A brand snatched from the burning. Barabbas set free. Well, in my third point, congregation, we come to this point of rejection because now we shift our focus from Barabbas to the Jews, to the Jewish people that are crying out for Jesus' blood. One of the authors I read on this text made a very striking comment. He said that when the Jews yelled out to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar, the Jewish people lost their soul that day. They lost their soul. Because of all the peoples on the earth, the Jewish people had a God. Yahweh, the great king, the covenant God. And now the Jews cry out. They sell their soul to the devil, as it were. We have no king but Caesar. Oh, people, listen to what you're saying. You, the people who God led out of Egypt with a mighty arm and with an outstretched hand, you, of all people, are saying, we have no king but Caesar. 
You remember what Jesus himself said earlier in the Gospels. He said, this people says, we will not have this man to reign over us. But congregation, it gets worse. It gets far worse. And I know that you shuddered probably uh, when you read it. In our text in verse 25, the Jewish people yelled, his blood be on us and our children. Oh, the horror of that comment. His blood be on us and our children. And if the Jews lost their soul when they said, we have no king but Caesar, 40 years later, they lost their city and their temple. When the Roman army, the Roman juggernaut, as it were, rolled over the city of Jerusalem and left it in ashes and destroyed it. Oh, congregation, how we can hear the cry of Jesus as he looked and as he saw in the future by his prophetic eye and he cried out over Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. A congregation, that speaks to us today too. Because here in 2022, the Passion Weeks have come upon us again. And here the cry of Jesus goes out again. I will be your king. I will be your substitute. Let the blood of your sin and the guilt for it be on me. But there can be a people, a congregation, let's not excuse ourselves this, this morning. Because it can be us who say we will have no king but Caesar. And we can say let the blood be upon us and our children. All the consequences of the rejection of the gospel, my friends, are so terribly, terribly serious. I press it upon you, young and old, this morning, to think about what that means to say, no king but Caesar. We will not have this man to reign over us. And Jesus weeps over the city and says, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And congregation, if you reject the gospel this morning, then I, not me, but the Lord Jesus Christ through me, says your house will be left to you desolate. You will have to bear the guilt of your own sin. And that's something you can't bear. You can't carry that burden. It'll crush you forever and forever. I hasten to my last point, substitute. We looked at Barabbas as a liberated we look at the Jews and their rejection. But now, congregation, let's end by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the great substitute. What happens to Jesus? He's the great, innocent one. But he, congregation, is nailed to a cross. And we celebrate that in these weeks. He was nailed to a cross. Do you see him there? And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why does he say that? Well, because, congregation, as Barabbas walked down the road a free man, Jesus, the guilty one, was nailed to the cross a guilty man. And the wrath of God was poured out upon him. And Jesus, in the agony of his soul, finds, uh, finds expression for his feelings in the 22nd Psalm as we sang it. And he cries out, as the psalmist had so many years before him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
The wrath of God poured out upon the innocent one. Do you see that this morning, congregation? Because it fills us with shame in one sense. But it also fills us with gladness, right? Because we know that's the only hope for guilty sinners. That still in 2022, a crucified Savior can be preached to Barabbas. And Jesus still stands here, congregation, in this pulpit and pulpits throughout this land and says, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Isn't that beautiful, congregation? To hear the gospel, to hear the heart of Jesus towards Barabbas, to hear the heart of Jesus towards people who have signed their own death, their own death warrant, who've loved their own destruction, because we were all out there with the Jews crying out for the blood of Christ. But Jesus says, I'll take that blood. The, Jesus, the, the Jews say his blood be upon us and our children. Jesus said, the guilt for, taking, for shedding my blood be upon me. I'll take that guilt. I'll satisfy the justice of God for, that, for those sins. And that's why he can say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. That's why he can say, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. That's the preaching of the gospel again, congregation. That we see the love of God that again, just as last year and the previous year, the minister can stand and say there's room in the blood of Christ for the worst Barabbas here. Are you Barabbas this morning? I don't know what sins you may have committed, but I know this. That no sin will keep you out of the kingdom of God. No sin is too great to keep you from the Savior. Not even the sin of putting to death the Lord Jesus Christ can keep you from heaven. And God says, here is room, here is blood. For the worst Barabbas, come and be forgiven. You know, congregation, I kind of wonder to myself, I wonder if that man Barabbas ever came to that place in his life where he considered what happened to him that day when he was set free from that prison, when he walked down the road, a free man. I wonder if anybody ever came and said, Brabish, you know how that happened? Do you know how that happened? The innocent Jesus, who had done so much good in Judea, came and he went to the cross so that you could be set free. I wonder, I hope, that Barabbas came to see it and came to believe in the Savior. Now, of course, we have no record of that at all. But I do know this, congregation, that if there's a Barabbas here this morning, and that's all of us, you can find forgiveness in the great substitute and the blood that he shed on the cross for you. May God grant that we might find that place, congregation, and take refuge in it for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. O oh, almighty God and merciful Father, we take refuge in our great substitute this morning. When we see that Barabbas can be set free from prison, 
then we know that we also, Lord, can be set free from our sin and guilt. And we are Barabbas, Lord. We are worse than Barabbas. Barabbas never sinned against the gospel as we have. But Lord, we have sinned against the gospel. We have heard it many times. And many times, Lord, we have turned away from it. Perhaps even rejected it. Pushed it away from us. But this morning we come as lost Barabbases. And we say, Lord Jesus, we take refuge in your blood. Let not the guilt of your blood be upon us. But we take refuge, O Lord, in your wounds, in your blood. And we pray, O God, that our guilt might rest on you as the great substitute, as the great satisfaction for sin. Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, bless us with faith in the Savior that we might rejoice to know that all our sins are forgiven us only for the sake of this one Savior, this one sacrifice on the cross. Lord, we do lift up also the, uh, at the close of the service, we're thankful, Lord, to see Tess back in our midst after she returned from her mission trip. We're thankful for the safe travels you've given to her. And we pray, O oh God, that you would bless her in our midst again. Remember us also this evening, Lord. We bring us together again. We pray for Pastor Admiral. We pray that we would have a good hour. As this morning also, or as this evening also, we may consider something of what it means to bear the cross of Christ. Lord, will you look down upon us in your mercy then and remember us and speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.